the German command, actually, to their credit, played with French psychology, and they understood that the French uh, senior staff were clearly still uh, nostalgic about World War One and had really clearly not learned the lessons of the First World. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts, Matthew Galt and Jason Fields. Hello and welcome to War College. I'm Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Galt. In World War II, France fell so fast to the Germans, the U.S. thought a fifth column had to have had a hand in it. But what were the real reasons one of the world's superpowers collapsed in only a few months? Was the German army that good? Were the French, who had held off the Germans for four years in World War I, that bad? Here to discuss it with us is Mark Mazarowski. Mark, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Can we start actually in a somewhat unusual place. Can we talk a little bit about the political situation in France before the war started? What what was the government like? Was it a liberal democracy? What were the stresses? There were some uh, sort of worrisome developments in uh, the several years that preceded the uh, Second World War. Uh, France had been governed by a popular front, which was a coalition of uh, of leftist parties under Leon Blum. Um, from 1936 to 1938, the Popular Front basically collapsed, and uh, in came um, conservative regimes that essentially were tilting far more towards uh, a conciliatory approach towards Germany while re-emphasizing sort of a heady nationalistic, uh, almost chauvinistic agenda, uh, obviously anti-communist, but um, kind of bringing back the good old days of the French conservatism with their uh, allies in the business community. So what you see is uh, is France pretty much divided and polarized, um, heavily so, uh, and um, almost in a situation where it can't really uh, claim to be uh, a united country. And uh, there are also forces in France that are pro-reconciliation or at least uh, pro-accommodation with Nazi Germany. And there is also a powerful anti-fascist movement, which, of course, results from uh, those forces that were allied with the the Popular Front, but also some of the extreme French nationalists are also heavily anti-German. So essentially what you have uh, is a very fractured country. Uh, also, uh, France was going through a heavily pacifist phase, uh, namely that I think perhaps as a result of the uh, First World War, there was uh, this general feeling that of the never again. In other words, uh, let's not do this again, and uh, let's uh, basically just adopt a purely defensive posture and not seek to have an aggressive, powerful military. And uh, so that also undercut the military sector, uh, reliance was given to this uh, Maginot line that was built in eastern France to ward off any kind of invasion from the east, namely from Germany, 
this was a sort of a 700 kilometer long uh, succession of, um, of bunkers and fortifications extending from uh, the Alden forest all the way down to the southern edge of Alsace. And the, uh, the idea behind that is that anybody who wanted to come through, namely the Germans, would meet with fierce resistance and be forced basically to go around the Lignes Maginot and therefore be, be fragmented. And of course, the French thought by producing that effect, they would be easier to ward off and defeat such an invasion. Well, the joke was on the French after all, because of their heavy reliance on this line. And uh, uh, they didn't really see it coming when uh, the, uh, the Germans basically invaded in May 10th, 1940. What you have is a, is a very powerful pro-German lobby in France, a pacifist movement, uh, a disgruntled left, which is not uh, raising the flag of defeat. On the international scale, you've, uh, you've gone to uh, the Munich Conference of September 1938, where we saw the appeasers in England and France essentially uh, bow to Hitler and sacrifice Czechoslovakia as the next victim uh, following Austria. And uh, living with that, uh, you sort of wonder whether anybody could actually uh, hold out against uh, Hitler and uh, a rearmed Germany. Can you tell us a little bit about the size of the French military at that point versus the German one? Well, um, that's the part that's actually kind of fascinating because the French had at least potentially a standing army of close to 5 million, uh, while the Germans um, had a, um, a standing army of about 3.5 million. Now, the, uh, the advantage on the German side was the fact that it had uh, 10 armored divisions. Uh, these were the panzer units. And uh, the French were not as well equipped on that side. They had mostly light mechanized um, uh, infantry divisions. But uh, because of this sort of um, reliance on a defensive strategy, they weren't really um, keen to essentially emphasize um, independent autonomous panzer or at least the equivalent of panzer units essentially having their own sort of operational uh, orders to act together as a homogeneous group, but rather than um, instead, those units were basically fielded to support the infantry. So this was not, this is in sharp contrast with essentially what the Germans had developed as a strategy, which was basically to, um, to uh, segregate their, uh, their pan the panzer units and to make, basically make them into a, an autonomous strike force. And that's kind of what, we discovered as part of the Blitzkrieg strategy. Also, the Air Force was um, well-developed on the German side, but equally on the French side. The problem on the French side, again, is that planes were not geared towards uh, an aggressive stance. I mean, they were basically used for reconnaissance and defensive operations. So what you see essentially is that although one could think that there was a an even spread between the two the two sides. Uh, the, on the German side, there was much more of a an offensive coherence rather than. And on the French and British side, you see more of a defensive uh, strategy taking hold of the way that the uh, the order of battle is organized. So why did the French fail to realize that Hitler might go through the Low Countries? You know that happened in World War One, right? Yeah, but in in a certain sense, it's not that they were caught by 
they were caught by surprise. They just felt that they could stop the the, um, the, the German armies from coming in. I mean, I don't. Yeah, of course they were not. They were not aware that Hitler would strike so deep and so wide and so aggressively because, I mean, it starts with Norway and then basically uh, Hitler just sort of uh, picks his way down gradually the, uh, down the map. And uh, when finally the attack takes place against the Netherlands, Belgium, and France, it's almost a simultaneous attack. The Air Force, the German Air Force plays a determining role, as we saw, you know, with the uh, almost the leveling of Rotterdam. And... Um, and Belgium was basically uh, not to not to be uh, offensive towards the uh, the Belgians, but it was a cakewalk. Um, it's flat, and just like uh, in World War One, it became the crucible for uh, uh, you know a terrible sort of uh, conflict uh, developing again. The only difference this time is that the, the Germans were a little bit smarter than the French and the British, and essentially they understood that the French were stuck in their ways from the World War I and would essentially adopt, again, this defensive strategy and basically fight it out in Belgium. So they essentially teased the French into meeting them in Belgium, and, and while the French basically took the bait, and together with the British, the, uh, the armored units struck through the uh, sort of the weak underbelly, if you want, of the French defensive lines, which is the Ardennes and the Meuse uh, area, which basically lies east-southeast of uh, the heartland of Belgium. And uh, they were able to uh, to throw seven armored divisions um, through the Ardennes forest, which the French did not expect because they thought it was an actual uh, defensive line, um, unclear as to what possessed them to think that a forest could basically hold off uh, seven armored divisions, but uh, that was the French position. <laughs> and uh, and while the uh, the French and the British were mired in uh, the Belgian muck, so to speak, they were basically encircled very quickly as a result of this uh, sort of bifurcation strategy, or what Churchill called the sickle effect that the, uh, that the Germans borrowed. And... Uh, I think by May 22nd, the uh, British and French were surrounded in some kind of loose pocket, and the only exit was Dunkirk, and we know what happened there. It was almost, almost like child's play, and I think uh, it was uh, the German command, actually, to their credit, played with French psychology, and they understood that the French uh, senior staff were clearly still uh, nostalgic about World War One and had really clearly not learned the lessons of the First World They. France knew they were coming, right? The attack wasn't a complete surprise. No, there was not a surprise. I think the, what surprised them was the violence of the uh, of the offensive. And uh, I think they were in denial for most of the time. One of the exceptions was Colonel de Gaulle, who understood what was going on. And he understood also the value of using uh, armored units separately from infantry. And in fact, uh, to his credit, he was able to ward off uh, in a small pitched battle in northern France a German Panzer unit, and uh, but you know that was just him. And you know it's one thing to uh, to destroy 500 German tanks, but it's another thing to try to ward off the 3,000 others. So, so I guess uh, what he basically was the one that had division, and also he wanted France to modernize its air force, but uh, he basically uh, ran into stone walls. And I guess the rest was uh, history. 
So does this mean that there were no more troops anywhere else in France? Or was it just that they weren't in any position to put up any kind of resistance? They were, uh, no, they were deployed, but most of them were deployed on the Eastern Front. And uh, the number of units that were meeting, uh, meeting up with the German uh, offensive in Belgium were far were inadequate in terms of uh, countering what was obviously an extremely well-organized attack. And uh, again, I think the, the French high command's uh, excessive reliance on a, on a defensive line uh, like the Maginot line proved to be completely ineffective, and, and French troops are essentially quartered behind it. So by the time uh, the Germans are attacking around the Maginot line, as was expected, uh, French troops are not, are not equipped to basically uh, hold them off. It was just a matter of training and of uh, psychological expectations. Uh, the morale probably was not very high. Uh, French, uh, again, as I tried to describe to you earlier, the, uh, the mood in France was uh, not belligerent, was not bellicose, but instead uh, was uh, somewhat, um, I'm going to say there was depression, but uh, it was, uh, there was no fighting spirit, if you want, and uh, not of the kind that could basically uh, meet head-on uh, a formidable force like what the Germans were deploying. Now, had the French been better organized, uh, and the British, and probably with more... Uh, Motivation had their air force been a little bit more on the offensive side, and had they also uh, been a little bit more clever about how they use their mechanized units. Uh, again, this is all strategy. They might have been able to uh, to stall the German advance. It doesn't mean that they would have been able to ultimately succeed, but they would have at least dealt a heavy psychological blow against Hitler. But you know, this is all what if. Who actually surrendered? Which government was it in France? Uh, by the spring 1940, there's pretty much no government. Um, the, uh, the government essentially abandons uh, Paris and flees to, uh, to the south. Um, there, the National Assembly, what was left of it, uh, votes, um, endorses uh, Marshal Philippe Pétain as the next leader of France, the only one who can save them, the hero of Verdun, who's you know, at least 80 years old, but he still had his wits about him. And, uh, you know, he was a symbol of uh, all that was good about France, quote-unquote. A symbol of a sort of old France, nationalistic, slightly monarchic on the side. But, you know, he was also authoritarian and uh, not one to be be cajoled by democratic principles. So that particular government settles in Vichy. And on the 22nd of June, uh, an armistice is signed between uh, that new leadership and the German military. So what you have is that France is uh, half occupied by German troops, and the agreement of the armistice is to allow the Pétain government to rule over the so-called free zone, or unoccupied zone, but it does have um, access to the occupied zone and is able to uh, establish an administrative presence in uh, Paris. So that's the uh, that's the way that the uh, the checkerboard looks like uh, in uh, in the third week of June. In the meantime, you had De Gaulle making his famous speech that France would never surrender, and he basically leaves for uh, London and establishes a Free French, and that's the official beginning, I guess, of the official French resistance. <music> 
Hey, sleepyhead. Why so sleepy? Oh, it's because your mattress is a bag of potatoes and scrap metal. You should try a Nectar mattress. With award-winning layers of comfort, you can sleep easy knowing you got incredible value. Mattresses start at just $499, and you get hundreds of dollars in accessories thrown in, as well as a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. Was there a reason why the Germans at that point didn't just steamroll over Vichy as well and just conquer all of France? Well, I think um, you know, I think opinions are divided on this one, but the general consensus is that um, France was the most important power in, uh, in Western Europe at the time. And Hitler knew that uh, he needed uh, the assent and consent of the French to basically reinforce the Reich, have access to resources, and uh, essentially um, complete and strengthen his hold over the European continent. And the only way to do this would be to have uh, an ally on his flank, um, more like a vassal, and the one who would be uh, willing to do his bidding in exchange for uh, an illusion of freedom. And um, in, that, in that regard, um, it was probably a, a sensible thing to do. Why pit, you know, 40 million people against you if you didn't have to do that? So I think by that, in that sense, it was a calculation. There was no intention really of subjugating uh, France, although I'm sure there was, uh, there was a plan to do so. But the, uh, the reality on the ground was that uh, France was defeated. And there was an expression of political willingness coming out of the political class of France to uh, to seek an accommodation with uh, with the Third Reich. Again, uh, as I told you earlier, uh, there was a an undercurrent uh, for at least a decade of uh, pro-German sentiment, which is very strong in some sectors of the, uh, the business community and of the political community, and even and even amongst the intellectual class of France, to uh, to. Uh, establish closer relations with the former enemy. And uh, and that probably might have played a role. I mean, the German ambassador for the Reich in Paris is Otto Abetz, who played a critical role in Paris uh, in the latter years, in the, in the mid to late 30s, uh, as a German agent of uh, closer Franco-German ties. And uh, he was so good at it that the French government expelled him because they thought, they thought he was plotting against... Uh, against the security of the French nation. So, um, and he comes back and basically finds all of his old friends. So it all, it all, it all works, you know, for everybody, at least for those who, uh, who chose uh, to dally with the, with the Germans. And, uh, and you have in uh, October 1940 the famous meeting between uh, Pétain and Hitler at Montoir, which signals officially the beginning of the collaboration period. What happened to all those French soldiers, the ones that, you know, presumably weren't killed in combat? Well, uh, the official figure, at least uh, one that I was able to find, is 1.8 million French soldiers were captured and uh, eventually sent to Stalags in the Third Reich. So uh, that's, where they, uh, that's where they ended up. Well, they were treated as, as prisoners of war. And in fact, the, uh, the Vichy government spends uh, an extraordinary amount of energy trying to secure their release or at least uh, establish uh, proper uh, conditions for them. 
uh, in those camps, and uh, I think there's a minister who's uh, a ministerial portfolio that's specifically designed for uh, you know dealing with the prisoner of war issue. Uh, so it was, uh, you know, it was a thorn in the Vichy side, and uh, it was something that uh, that occupied uh, their minds because they wanted these men to come back to France and contribute to uh, to the new France. And they still were treated a lot better than the Soviets were. Oh yeah, no, no. I mean, the Soviets were shot. In fact, in, at least in that house, and the, the Soviet prisoners were shot even before the Jews were uh, were dealt with. So it, it was it was extraordinary what happened to uh, to the Soviet prisoners in terms of ruthlessness. Did the French actually play much of a role in the liberation of France in 1944-45? Militarily, that is. Militarily, did uh, you know the resistance? La resistance is very famous, but did they have any impact? It's the old joke where everybody was in the resistance. So, um... <laughs> right. Well, you know, it's uh, it's still a very uh, contentious topic. Um, there is the become a myth, if you want, that the resistance uh, was uh, the embodiment of the souls of the French nation uh, at war with the Germans. And, uh, and of course, it was fratricidal because uh, uh, in order to be in the resistance, you had to rise up against your countrymen. And, uh, you know, it meant probably that you, uh, much like in the American Civil War, that families were broken up. Uh, you had to fight against your former bosses, your former colleagues, your friends, and uh, people that you knew in your village or in your town. So uh, it's a, you know it's a it's a traumatic episode, and uh, there are a number of waves of French of French resistance uh, operations and movements. And uh, there are the, those that were referred to as the résistance la première heure, in other words, those who had resisted from the very beginning, from the get-go. And uh, unfortunately, many of those uh, first resistance were dead by 1942. So what you have is uh, a gradual realization that by 1942, um, the Vichy government is really not cut up uh, uh, in the way that uh, the French thought, because first of all, they're starving. Uh, the requisitioning is uh, is inhuman. Uh, there's mass starvation in several in a number of cities, particularly in the south of France. Um, on a scale that had not been known in recent in recent times, um, the betrayals are con- are constant. Uh, of course, the uh, the trauma of seeing uh, the Jews being deported, interned, marginalized, harassed in the streets uh, affects uh, an increasing number of people. But you know, the French are slow to wake up in that sense. Um, and I guess if one wanted wanted to draw a map of France. Somewhere around 1942-1943, you would basically see that from village to village, you could either encounter pro-Germans, pro-Vichy, or anti-Germans and anti-Vichy, but you really had to know where to go. And in the same sense, that's what France looks like uh, at, the, at the peak of the, uh, of the collaboration period. So 42-43, it is extremely divided. And what I'm suggesting to you is that the, the, the resistance, regardless, it depends how you define it, but I would define it simply uh, acting in small, medium, and large ways against the, uh, both against the occupier and against the, um, the Vichy government. Uh, small acts could be uh, as uh, simple as giving a bicycle to uh to refugees fleeing, to uh, or to actual resistance fighters, or feeding somebody in need, 
uh, to uh, the medium-sized acts, which were basically to uh, deliver mail for uh, for the resistance or to act as a drop, to essentially the the higher level, which is you know uh, equally full of risk, and take up arms, uh, help in blowing up uh, railroads and communication centers, and uh, and perhaps even attacking uh, German forces uh, wherever that was possible. So what you have is uh, is the uh, is a gradual buildup of uh, activity and so i i do argue in favor of the of the, of the um, uh, argument that uh, the french did contribute in different ways you know uh, whether you think or not they're significant that's that's again for historians to decide but uh, there's enough evidence to show that there was a critical mass of individuals who uh, who were ready basically by 1944 but again it was a slow process and many people who rallied vichy in the early years, were disgruntled by 1942. And you have sort of the famous case of François Mitterrand, who was a poster child for Vichy in the early years, and uh, eventually gets bitter and um, begins to work for the underground. So, mm-hmm. And you have the resistance of the dernière heure, you know, those people who saw, oops, you know, we have to, uh, we better switch sides. Uh, I don't want to be too simplistic <laughs> about this, but you have this in every war, you know, in every uh, occupation regime where all of a sudden you decide, that, oh, you're going to save a couple people, uh, you're going to hide some Jews, and uh, and at the end of the war, you know, when the Germans are going to say, see, 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 I, uh, I was great, that was good, uh, I, uh, I uh, made up for all those bad things that I probably did, or that you suspect that I did, but fundamentally I'm a good guy, so, uh, so you had a lot of that too, but that's human, and uh, again, in terms of military contributions, yes, there were isolated instances of um, of military prowess, of uh, extraordinary sacrifice, uh, like the Vercors was one of the most extraordinary uh, moments in the French resistance. Uh, what was that? Well, it was the Maquis du Vercors, which, in other words, the uh, the resistance units in this uh, sort of heavily wooded area, I believe, in eastern France, and they held off an amazing number of German troops, but they were ma- they were basically Almost all of them were massacred, and of course uh, the German troops were aided by uh, by uh, French loyalists to the uh, to the Vichy government. So uh, it was a, you know it was another example that uh, once you were ready to fight, you were ready to do it all the way, and uh, that you know psychologically that does go a long way. And you're talking about doing so after three long years of uh, exploitation, persecution, and oppression. You know the temperature rises, and of course you cannot expect everybody to take up arms, but uh, resistance, as I indicated earlier, is uh, manifests itself in all sorts of different ways, and uh, they can be, uh, when taken together, they can be very effective in terms of destroying or at least um, uh, demoralizing the occupier, keeping it busy, distracted, and that's all they really have to do while the, uh, while the plans are being set afoot to, uh, to liberate the the country. So by the time D-Day comes, and also uh, the you know the invasion of the of the South by American forces, um, pretty much I think everybody's ready to uh, to do their bit. So whether they contributed significantly before, you know, uh, I'd say in isolated circumstances on different fronts, it was more intense than others. But once uh, the Allied troops on French territory, then uh, the game changes. And of course, you have the Paris insurrection uh, the week before uh, Paris is liberated. 
and uh, the city rose up against the Germans? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, against both the Germans and the collaborators. Yeah. And <laughs> inevitably, what you have is reprisals. Uh, and that was uh, kind of an ugly chapter, but uh, it was one that uh, unfortunately uh, is part of every uh, a very re- response by uh, by people who are oppressed is uh, that they will seek vengeance um, instantly. And justice is swift, whether you call it justice or not. That's a, again, it's, uh, it depends on where you stand on these matters. But nobody really knows what the numbers are. There was no clear audit. Um, Conservatives uh, basically accused the resistance of, uh, especially the leftist resistance, of executing as many as 10,000 people. Uh, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But there were a lot of accounts that were settled um, brutally in uh, all across France. Uh, some of those may have used the, uh, the liberation of France as an excuse to settle petty disputes. Uh, it's inevitable, but uh, that was what characterized uh, the first months of uh, liberation. Oh, well, thank you so much, Mark, for taking us through this whole thing. Uh, Matt, did you want to ask something else? No, I mean, uh, I kept thinking of questions and then he would immediately answer them. Thank you. Thank you. Can't thank you enough for doing this for us. Thank you so much for listening to this week's show. War College is me, Matthew Galt, and Jason Fields. You can follow us on Twitter at war underscore college or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash war college podcast. Please remember to subscribe on iTunes, and if you like us, please leave a review. It helps other people find the show, and we just might read your comments on the air. See you next week.